How to Tell Stories to Children is a bi-weekly podcast exploring the science and methodology of storytelling. I am Silke Rose West. And I am Joseph Saracy. We are the authors of How to Tell Stories to Children. Our goal is to foster diverse storytelling by helping individuals like you awaken to the storyteller within. Hi, everyone. This is Joseph Saracy. I want to give you a little bit of a heads up here because this episode is going to be a little different. If you've been following us in season two, we're typically sharing a story beforehand and then a little perspective on the story afterward. This episode is going to be more like our first season. It's an article I've been working on for a little over a year, and frankly, I'm delighted to share it with you today. It's largely about brain science and how our minds come to recognize a story in the first place. I've been waiting a long time to get this right because I believe it will give you a new way of understanding the power stories have over you and you have over them. To do that, I'm going to introduce you to some of the best story scientists out there today and also some of the key storytelling patterns in your mind. But you don't need any prior knowledge, and that's the part that took me so long to get right. You be the judge. At the end of this episode, Silka will join me for a little discussion, so you'll get to hear her perspective on all this, too. You can also find the text on both our blog and podcast page at howtotellstoriestochildren.com. You may find that relevant because there are a number of photos and links that support the material and just can't be explained with words. So, without further ado, this is your brain on stories. Peter wore a green felt hat with the long feather of a pheasant. Don't I look like Robin Hood? he asked, then sprinted off into the forests of Sherwood. I surveyed the hills. Little John, one of my students not much larger than a sack of flour, kept cover with a rain of arrows. In the distance, a few girls laughed, wearing gowns only they could see. If you have ever watched children act out a story, you have observed something exceptional about human behavior and cognition, something no other creature can do. A neighborhood dog, for example, happened to be with us that morning. It had fun running with the kids, but it wasn't in Sherwood, and it never saw itself as part of a merry band of robbers. The children, on the other hand, moved their bodies and limbs in tandem with the story in their minds, even when they knew it wasn't true. The story was enmeshed in their flesh and blood behavior. True and false was irrelevant, yet the story had real consequences. Adults aren't much different. Under the influence of the tooth fairy, men and women have been known to perform strange rituals at night. These acts often feel important. They have a place in our real lives, yet they make little sense to a dog or cat unable to comprehend the story behind the behavior. Santa Claus, Noah's Ark, Romeo, and Juliet. Under the influence of such stories, countless humans have undertaken difficult, strange, or daring deeds. The truth is usually of little consequence, yet the meaning is profound. This link between story, meaning, and behavior is so universal that we often fail to notice, like missing Sherwood Forest for the trees. Story is for a human as water is for a fish, writes Jonathan Gottschall in The Storytelling Animal. Gottschall is one of several researchers working on a complete theory of storytelling. Why, he asks, do stories wield so much significance in our lives, in our entertainment, culture, and religion? According to him, they are the very medium in which we live, breathe, and think. Today, some of the best scientists in the world are unraveling the link between storytelling and the human brain, giving us more power than ever before over the stories that influence our thoughts, emotions, and behavior. For the first time ever, we are able to ask questions like, why is it that our brains understand and create stories? And why can't dogs do it? Or can they? Questions like these are hard to comprehend because we cannot think outside of our mental landscape. 
Stories are an integral component of who we are, and they have been for many thousands of years. We cannot fathom a mind that cannot understand a story. So we might formulate the question another way. Did our ancestors, like modern dogs, once lack this crucial ability? If so, when did it develop, and why? The science behind the story. Scientists have long known that stories benefit our cognitive and emotional health. They help us remember information, build empathy, and simulate life events. But it is only recently that Gottschall and a few others have started to piece together a complete picture of storytelling's place in the human species. This episode will introduce you to some of the psychologists, neuroscientists, and evolutionary theorists working on that frontier. It will also allow you to observe some of the key patterns arising in your own mind. That's why we began with the lens of a children's story, because it's safe. The quaint or pleasant quality of child's play allows us to observe the pattern without getting triggered. Once we recognize the forces at play, we have a chance to see how stories and storytellers influence some of the most sacred things in our adult lives. Things like family, nation, religion, even the very concepts of belonging and self. The most powerful person in the world, said Steve Jobs, is the storyteller. The storyteller sets the vision, values, and agenda of an entire generation to come. To reckon with the gravity of that statement, this episode will look at how stories take up residence in our minds and what happens when they depart. This is your brain on stories. The Man in the Moon Have you ever walked into a forest and mistaken a branch on the ground for a snake? Maybe you jumped, then laughed at yourself as you quickly realized it was harmless. Or maybe you looked at the clouds, then turned to a friend and pointed out the face you see in it. Most of us see these kinds of things from time to time. Scientists call it pareidolia, mistaking a random collection of objects for something more meaningful. At one point, psychologists thought this was a sign of illness, but most now agree that it is an adaptive behavior, meaning it has an evolutionary benefit, and it's been observed in animals and computers as well. Why is it adaptive? Because when you mistake a branch for a snake, you laugh and you feel foolish. But if you mistake a snake for a branch, you don't give the menace proper attention. Sometimes you get bitten. You can even die. A hundred thousand years ago, the people who slightly over-recognized the presence of deadly or nutritious creatures tended to survive and reproduce, making them our ancestors. The humans who under-recognized these threats didn't survive to produce offspring, making them no one's ancestors. This difference may have been slight, but it was enough for natural selection to act upon, and it's why today we all inherit this funny ability to see faces in the clouds. Pareidolia can be experienced in all of our senses. Many people hear their phone chirp or ring, even when it's in another building. Unexpected sensations on our skin can make us jump and quake as if some icky bug has just landed there. Insects, like snakes, are one of the most common vectors of poison and illness, so these actions, while goofy, are not unwise. Seeing faces, like in the moon, is perhaps the most common form of pareidolia, because faces have long been one of the most important messengers for humans from infanthood to old age. Other people are by far more dangerous or beneficial to us than snakes and bugs, and it's to our advantage to recognize them, even if that leads us to over-recognize them. Pareidolia helps us define cognition. Instances of pareidolia are examples of what psychologists call cognition, and most of us just call thoughts. We think we see a snake, so we jump. We hear the phone ring, then reach for our pocket. We see a face hidden in the hills of Mars and wonder who put it there. Of course, it's much more common that our cognitions are valid. We do encounter snakes and bugs. Phones do ring, and most of the faces we see give us important information about a person's mood, intentions, and so on. 
like Gottschall's fish in water, the cognition or recognition of a face or creature is usually so obvious that we don't see them as an action of our brain. That's why it's helpful to identify something by its malfunction. It sheds light on the entire phenomenon. It can be hard to define health, but a common cold is easy to recognize, and it gives us perspective on what we mean by health. Just so, errors of cognition, like pareidolia, make it easier to understand the role cognition plays in our daily lives. Cognition isn't an isolated experience. It's continuous. To understand storytelling, we have to understand the rate of cognition, not just the isolated experience. We could start by picturing one instance of cognition, true or otherwise, as a point on a graph. For example, we see a branch and think it's a snake. That's one point, one cognition. Then we see our mother's face and recognize fear in her expression. That's another point, one cognition. To connect these cognitive dots, we draw a line. And because our minds work rapidly, even simultaneously cognating multiple instances, we can draw a line through multiple points in real time. This is a rudimentary form of storytelling, a sequence of cognitions through multiple instances over time. Mom is scared because she thought she saw a snake. Notice that the truth of the matter isn't necessarily important, aka the snake is actually a stick. If you can bear with the math analogy, stick with the graph for a second. If you hearken back to high school algebra, you may recall that the slope of a line describes its rate of change. In calculus, we call this the first derivative. The first derivative of location, a point, is velocity, or the rate of change. This gives us a very useful analogy for storytelling and narration. It is the first derivative of cognition. Truth isn't our primary concern. We know that some stories are true. We also know that some are false. But most of the time, we're not concerned with the difference. Some of the false stories are even our favorites, like Robin Hood or Noah's Ark. Regardless of whether they occurred in real life, these stories have meaning for us. We like the idea of animals climbing two by two into Noah's Ark, or a merry band of robbers equalizing the playing field. Many of us enjoy seeing the man in the moon. Humans are inclined to see narratives where there are none, says The Atlantic, because it can afford meaning to our lives. Like pareidolia, it is less important whether a story is true or not as whether it is effective. Like my students physically moving their bodies through the make-believe forests of Sherwood, an effective story like Robin Hood, Noah's Ark, or the theory of evolution can have enormous consequences on the very real behavior of humans. Storytelling is automatic. In 1944, Fritz Heider and Marianne Simmel conducted a groundbreaking experiment in storytelling and psychology. 34 people were shown a short film in which two triangles and a circle moved across the screen. The entire film, barely longer than a minute, is nothing but geometric shapes moving across a blank background. After the film, 33 of the people described what they saw in terms of a story. The circle was worried, they said. The little triangle was innocent. The big triangle was blinded by rage. Only one person said that all he saw were shapes. This simple experiment has been repeated for millions of viewers, and you too can watch it yourself and see what you think. What this experiment reveals is that our minds are conditioned to see a story even when no such thing exists, just like pareidolia. If we place the NASA photograph of Mars, and now this is in the article, if we place that photograph next to a still image from the film, we have an excellent example of pareidolia next to a true cognition of geometric shapes. But when we play the film, stringing instances of cognition in a line through time, we cannot help but see the first derivative, a story. The evolution of storytelling as a form of cognition. Just like pareidolia helps shed light on healthy instances of cognition, the false story in Hyder's and Simmel's video helps open our eyes to the role storytelling has in our daily lives. Scientists have known for decades that storytelling has remarkable 
benefits. It helps us remember information, focus, attention, build empathy, and so on. At the same time, anthropologists and mythologists have documented the stories at the root of every one of our major cultural institutions. Stories like Robin Hood, Noah's Ark, the first Thanksgiving, and Wonder Woman fulfill critical roles in our religions, nations, and within our very selves. There have been great societies that did not use the wheel, writes Ursula K. Le Guin. But there have been no societies that did not tell stories. The Huron legend of the sky tree, the Hindu Vedas, the Hawaiian stories of Maui and Pele, these stories helped form the ancient roots of powerful cultures. It's only recently, however, that a handful of scientists have begun stringing the research together into a comprehensive theory of storytelling's place in all Homo sapiens. Brian Boyd, author of On the Origin of Stories, puts the subject into an evolutionary perspective. He asks the question, why would any two people tell a story when both teller and told know it plainly to be false? It's a provocative question. Stories in books, movies, and conversations are our primary entertainment, so we often just think they're creative and fun. As a result, we tend to focus on the content. Boyd puts a new twist on it by asking, what's the advantage to the species? Is it an adaptive trait, like pareidolia, or just an eccentric byproduct of an overstimulated mind? The answer, he believes, is that our ancestors evolved to tell stories, not just to have fun at night, but because it was an increasingly effective social tool that helped people share valuable information, regulate social roles, and define cultural values. This is no puny tool. It's not a little hammer. Groups of humans, Boyd reminds us, have always outcompeted individuals and more loosely organized bands of people. His theory suggests that stories, meaning the ability to communicate, understand, and think them, were an essential ingredient in forming the superglue that held together the social fabric of our ancestors and allowed them to survive. Historian Yuval Noah Harari gives storytelling even more emphasis in his influential and provocative books, Sapiens and Homo Deus. Chapter 2 of Sapiens is dedicated exclusively to this point, and both books repeatedly refer back to its central message. In it, he describes the cognitive revolution that occurred some 70,000 years ago that transformed humans from an animal of no significance, those are his words, into world explorers and technology buffs. Anatomically, he notes, there's little difference between Homo sapiens today and 100,000 years ago. At the time, there were several other human species still alive on our planet, like Neanderthals, Denisovans, and others all of whom had similar tools, the use of fire and other traits we think of as uniquely human. Homo sapiens, says Harari, were not particularly better or more well-suited to the climate and even appear to have had some weaknesses, like smaller brains, compared to Neanderthals. For over 30,000 years, Homo sapiens remained a small population of relatively insignificant creatures, an animal of no significance. But then something dramatic happened about 70,000 years ago. Suddenly, we observe an enormous change in human tools and behavior, and the subsequent and rapid extinction of all other human species, as well as the extinction of many of the largest animal species on Earth, like woolly mammoths in the Arctic, huge flightless birds called moas in New Zealand, and three species of camel in North America, these animals are no longer with us. Scientists call this period the cognitive revolution. With no obvious change in anatomy, humans suddenly display remarkably sophisticated skills, quickly disperse into every possible landmass on the planet, and produce art, buildings, and cultures still visible today. What happened? The lack of anatomical change leads scientists to believe something happened within the cognitive structure of the mind, not the physical size or structure of the brain. What was it? According to Harari, it was fiction, 
That's his quote. That's his word, fiction. The ability to tell stories and share common myths, says Harari, gave our ancestors an ability previously unseen on Earth, something Neanderthals and other early humans did not possess. Prior to this cognitive development, all animals, if they could communicate at all, communicated merely about what was real. Once Homo sapiens evolved the ability to communicate about what was false, the face of the earth was forever changed. Our ancestors could now think and speak about things that did not exist. New tools, for example, or mythical structures, stories that gave them a sense of belonging. Those stories created culture. I'll pause to acknowledge that evolution, itself told in the form of a story, is but one lens we can use to make sense of the world. It is not crucial that Harari's evolutionary history is true, just like the story of Adam and Eve is not merely a matter of historic truth. The question is whether it is effective. Humans of different persuasions can easily get trapped in an argument here, and I wish both to acknowledge and avoid that. It is my opinion that this evolutionary lens is not better than, say, a religious lens, but it is effective because it helps us understand the role that storytelling has in our modern lives. Today, stories are still at the center of our mental lives, even if the stories themselves frequently change. Comprehending the role fiction and storytelling have in our lives gives us leverage over the story rather than vice versa, the story having leverage over us. David Sloan Wilson, one of the most respected voices on evolutionary theory in the United States, shares a similar view in Darwin's Cathedral. Religious stories, he suggests, may have led to the success of our species in exactly the way Boyd and Harari propose, by providing a powerful social glue that allowed supergroups of humans to form and easily disseminate knowledge and skill. Without the storytelling skill, humans were forced to organize within the relatively small society of family and hunting groups, much like Neanderthals. The natural distrust of outgroups, which we still possess, prevented such people from forming larger social networks. As a result, information and technology was kept within small subgroups, and the rate of growth and development was slow on a genetic timescale. Common myths and stories broke down these barriers and allowed larger and larger groups of humans to trust one another. The cooperation within these larger groups yielded unheard of technological growth and power, something Neanderthals and non-storytelling humans just couldn't compete with. This is the cognitive revolution our ancestors experienced 70,000 years ago. And while the outer world may have experienced big changes since then, our mental landscape remains much the same. How do we form the important social groups that dominate and regulate our lives? Shared experiences are important, but we can only share experiences with a couple hundred people at most. Sharing common stories in our churches our nations, our neighborhoods, and whatever cultural groups we happen to be a part of allows us to communicate and cooperate with a vastly larger pool of humans. This is why a story like Robin Hood can be told and retold by billions of people in different places and times. It's why, when meeting someone new at a dinner party, you suddenly feel closer and more comfortable when you learn that you both love Star Wars. It doesn't matter whether it's true, it has social value. It also explains why scientists continually publish research about the benefits of storytelling on our cognitive and emotional health. Our minds, if we accept the theories of Boyd, Harari, and Wilson, our minds evolved to make sense of the world through this very medium. Whether it happened 1 million or 70,000 years ago is largely irrelevant. What matters is that it worked, and it is still working within us today. Stories and Information So let's look at how stories help our minds process information. In 1969, Gordon Bauer and Michael Clark at Stanford University created a simple memory test. Participants were asked to memorize a set of 10 words. 
Some were invited to remember the words in any order they liked, while others were asked to create a story that contained all the words in the list. When later asked to recall the words, the participants who had created stories remembered six to seven times as many words as the others. That is a six to seven hundred percent increase in memory. Now, imagine that list of ten words as ten still images from the film of Hyder and Simmel. Again, you've got to see this to understand it. If we looked at ten photos from that film, each an instance of cognition, we would probably see little more than a few shapes in different locations. We probably wouldn't make anything more of it, and we would have a hard time recalling the experience. It would be of little significance to us. But if we imagine the same words strung together in a story, true or otherwise, we encounter exactly what we do in the film. Suddenly the still images come alive and we register it as a story. And what else do we do? We remember it by orders of magnitude better than a collection of facts or still images. What's more, once we get it, that is, once we cognate it, we're able to tell other people about it. We communicate. That's why millions of people have now watched Hyder's and Simmel's film. Ice cream for your brain. The excitement we feel when listening to a good story can be likened to the flavor of ice cream on our tongues. It tells our bodies to pay attention. Full of calories, sugar, and fat, ice cream is one of the most nourishing foods on the planet. Again, it helps to understand this through an evolutionary lens and drop the modern story of weight loss and health often associated with the words ice cream. For our ancestors 70,000 years ago, ice cream would have been a no-brainer. That's why we feel pleasure when we taste it. It tells us there is nutrition and calories here. We do not get the same experience chewing grass because our bodies can't digest it. This is what storytelling does for our brains. It helps us focus on information our bodies can digest. Like ice cream, Today, we need to be thoughtful about how much and what kinds of stories we put into our bodies. But unlike the ice cream metaphor, it's not the content of a story that is so nourishing, but the means of delivery. Storytelling is how our brains prefer to think. Theories from Boyd, Harari, and others have turned the perspective of storytelling on its head. They help us see Sherwood Forest, storytelling cognition, not the trees or individual stories. Instead of asking why we like any particular story, we begin to see that stories are the very medium in which we think, just like Gottschall's fish. In fact, we are so saturated with stories that, like pareidolia, we sometimes need unhealthy or false instances in order to reveal the ocean of stories in which we live and breathe every day. Storytelling mimics neural architecture. There may be a simple reason why storytelling is so effective. The neural architecture of the human brain. The neurons inside our brains form connections with many thousands of others, making the brain a vast web of interconnected cells. The activity of our minds mirrors this connectivity, and anytime we bring to mind a particular thought, be it a memory, a word, an image, or fantasy, we introduce a cascade of correlated ideas, most of them unconscious. Psychologists call this priming. When you read the word eat, says Nobel Prize-winning psychologist Daniel Kahneman, you are temporarily more likely to complete the word fragment S-O-blank-P with the word soup than soap, for example. Psychologists say that the word eat primed the solution soup. And there is a lot of research into how certain words influence our answers to important decisions, like what to buy or who to vote for. This isn't just a game. But priming isn't a one-way street. Kahneman says that primed ideas have an ability to prime other ideas, like ripples on a pond. Priming effects can even cross modalities so that holding a pencil between one's teeth, forcing you to smile, tends to make cartoons seem funnier. What studies on priming demonstrate is that cognition is called to mind via association, not isolation. 
This is exactly what we might expect given the web-like neural structure of our physical brains, where any individual neuron might be connected to tens or thousands of others. And it's the same reason why ten words are more memorable when strung together into a story than packaged on their own. The story takes advantage of our associative architecture, allowing us to find or remember any individual component a little more easily because we have a larger path network back to the original target. This may be why our ancestors evolved to tell stories in the first place. Like constellations for our brains, stories tie instances of cognition together into associated strings, making it easier for us to navigate back to important information and share it. If you've ever found yourself bewildered by the immensity of the night sky, you might understand why our ancestors fabricated the constellations of the zodiac. It matters not whether Orion is real or fake. He helps us find our way. Storytelling synchronizes brains. The information or content is just one aspect of a shared story. The evolutionary theories indicate that the social experience of shared stories, true or otherwise, is even more influential. Uri Hassan, a professor of psychology and neuroscience at Princeton University, helps us understand why. In his TED Talk, Your Brain on Communication, and you really should watch this, he describes a series of innovative experiments he and his team conducted in his lab. In the first, participants were placed in an fMRI scanner as they listened to his story. Before the story began, the brain waves in the auditory cortex of participants, right? This is the brain region associated with hearing and cognition. Their brain waves varied widely, as one might expect of random strangers. But when the story began, their brain waves immediately began to synchronize. Hassan refers to this as neural entrainment and likens it to a set of metronomes clicking at different rates that when placed on a common balance, begin to synchronize and eventually click all at the same rate. Again, this is in the video and it's worth seeing. This is what the story did for the people in his experiment. It made their minds click at the same rate. But it doesn't end there. In further experiments, Hassan demonstrated that the speaker's brain also displayed the same synchronization. In fact, both Russian and English speakers, when hearing the same story but in their own mother tongues, showed the same synchronization in their brains. It all clicked. What this indicates is that the meaning, not merely the sounds or words, was consistent from listener to listener, speaker to listener, and even across languages. Written evaluations from participants after the experiment confirmed that each understood the story in much the same way. Stories are more than just words. When Hassan broke down the story into its individual components, fragmented words of the story that he played in reverse, Participants showed synchronization in the brain regions that process words and their meanings, but failed to produce synchronization in brain regions associated with higher orders of cognition. The words were understood, but the larger meaning was not shared. Again, we can liken this to the still images in the Heidel and Simmel film, or the list of 10 random words in Bowers and Clark's experiment. On their own, these words or images have limited cognitive value. But when strung together into a story, more brain regions get recruited. The experience becomes more meaningful, memorable, and easier to share. Storytelling is about connection. Piecing together the research and theories of Heidel, Simmel, Boyd, Harari, Kahneman, Hassan, and others helps us develop a very robust perspective on storytelling's place in our lives today. Storytelling is entertaining for a very good reason. It is our medium of information, behavior, and social trust. Like Gottschall's fish or the air we breathe, it pervades everything we think and do.
Storytelling, of course, isn't the only medium. There's no reason to get zealous about this. The intimacy of touch, song, parentage, and shared food are just a few examples of other mediums in which humans navigate these important social realms. But there's little question left that storytelling is a singularly important skill. More importantly, every single person is a storyteller. In the modern world, we are surrounded by stories, perhaps more than ever before, and not just from friends and family. We receive them in books, movies, podcasts, and so on. This can cause some of us to believe that storytelling is a skill for experts. Our own storytelling skills seem to pale in comparison. But this is like believing that the abundance of marathon runners is reason enough to stop walking. Placing storytelling within a cognitive, evolutionary framework helps us recognize the role stories play in our minds and those of our children. We know that some stories are true. We also know that some are false. Either way, they have a significant impact on our behavior, our cultures, our education, and even things like our emotions and self-esteem. The internal stories about self wield tremendous influence over who we think we are and what we are to become. Learning to recognize these stories and leverage some amount of control over them is perhaps one of the most important things we can do for ourselves and our kids. The View from On High I'm bored, Peter told me, just moments before he had put on his green felt cap and run off into Sherwood. The kids had all been a little wonky after lunch. They were finding it difficult to play together. The trees were the same trees they had seen a thousand times. The grass, the same grass. Sticks were just sticks. Let's play Robin Hood, Stevens suggested, destined to become Little John. Suddenly, everyone's eyes lit up. If you have ever had the opportunity to watch a story descend into the minds and hearts of a band of humans, you will recognize its power. Sticks and dirt remain exactly the same, but everything of consequence has changed. The loose weave in the social fabric suddenly becomes tightly bound. This is the takeaway. Real things remain exactly as they are, but stories, whether true or otherwise, change real things. They make humans act differently and often with a much stronger sense of common purpose. We entered this forest through the innocent eyes of children. This was done purposefully because there was danger lurking in Sherwood the entire time. From our new vantage point, we have the opportunity to recognize that humans of all ages do exactly what children do. We make the forest of our lives come alive with new meaning via the invisible objects in our minds. Some stories are true. Some are false. Both are effective. Both can be wielded with delicate and loving hands, and both can be used to spread hate. It is worth taking notice. Hi, Silke. Good morning, Joe. Um, I want to welcome you into this space and also myself. I know that there's a lot in our minds and hearts right now, just very much alive in our bodies. You know, this, this conversation will, will be attached to this article that I had, uh, I, I wrote, I, I worked on that for a long time. That article has been sitting with me for, I'm going to say about a year and a half. That's how long mm-hmm. I've been sitting with it, right? And I recognize a lot of the imperfection in it, too. And um, we've had a very interesting and very sweet relationship to that over the last about eight days when I shared it with you very <laughs> explicitly. And it was, it, was, it was very interesting to me because we actually almost had a sort of a falling out around it. And it, 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 I think it knocked both of us a little bit off our center because we both thought it was about the content 
of it, right? What at least I was attempting to say. And over the past week and in the last few days, as we've sort of reoriented, I think we're both acknowledging that that article and, and in fact, our lives. Sometimes it's possible for us to get trapped in the idea that we're talking about a particular subject or thing. <laughs> but what we're doing is we're communicating. And we've been doing this now. We've actually been sharing this work of storytelling for some years, Silka. We're about three years into this process. We're writing the book, sharing the book, talking about it, recording stuff. Why do we do it? Why do we do it with each other? Why did I write that article? Why do I want to share it with you? I want to invite you to give your perspective a little bit and just even just your initial reaction um, about a week ago when I shared that with you, because I think it's important and we, and we can kind of weave ourselves in and out of, of all those comings and goings. Does that sound yeah. fair? Sure. Okay. Thank you. Mm -hmm. Well, last week when you uh, asked me to sit with you and listen to the article, I, I felt first of all overwhelmed. It was too much head information for me and I had a hard time feeling into it. And I realized I started to uh, actually block it. Then I had to really, I had to actually distance myself, which is actually also a trauma response where you, te you, you need space. And I created that space by also distancing myself from you. And in this stepping away, I was really exploring what, what came up for me with the article because I understand that it's written with so much intention and so much like of your passion to science and the way you can use words to craft this beautiful essay. And for me, I... I was, I had a hard time, as I said, feeling into it, and then I became kind of helpless. And then I asked you to print it out for me, and I, start, I thought like, well, if I have it on paper and I can read it, maybe I can approach it from a different lens and, or a different angle. And then what I did is actually I thought, I started reading it, I'm like, I don't need to read it. I need to actually wrap it in like this is a metaphor, but I would say I wrapped it uh, in a in a blanket and put it on the altar. And I'm like, I love this man, and I want to honor what is true for him, and I also want to honor what is true for me. And truth is, this is a little bit over my head. If I go in so much of a headspace, I would it would it takes me out of my storytelling being. Once I was able to do that for myself, I felt like I could come back into relationship with you and it didn't become a piece that was threatening between us. When we engaged this weekend with having a sweat lodge and you tended the fire so I could sit in that place of water pourer, I was aware that this man knows how to tend the fire because he pays attention. And the same attention is in the, in the essay, in the, all the research that you did. You know, and you're here to learn. And so the fire teaches you. I'm here to learn. The water teaches me. And in us working together, we can actually create some energy and an opening that allows us to invite the larger community, the listeners on this podcast, to think into how, how are we approaching the things that are brought to the table that make us put up the wall and say, no, that's not for me. How do we take those walls down and say, I'm standing in my own being I'm going to see, can I absorb this information? If I can't, what do I need to do so I don't lose the connection of love and trust and be able to speak what I have to say? 
because this attention for detail that you have is also helping you to tend this ceremonial fire from a place of like paying attention to the fire. And that speaks to me when I see your presence with that fire and with being attentive, the way you set it up, the way you stay with it, the way you see it through all the way to the end. That ignites in me this strong feeling of, I love this man so mm -hmm. much. And so I want that love to carry us and to help us to move through these difficulties. And I wish that ultimately for humanity that mm -hmm. we come to these places where we understand ourselves enough to realize when are we putting up the wall. Yeah. I experienced that so much throughout this week and, and the good and the, and the aching <laughs> parts of it as we came in and out of sort of union union of mind, union of heart. Mm. And you're using several rich metaphors. They're particularly rich for us because we've lived it. We've lived this experience. And of course, somebody listening, you know, you might not have the same relationship to the fire. To You might not have the same relationship to story. And yet it's possible for us to understand these metaphors and the way that we use them to help ourselves understand ourselves and understand each other. This is the root, I believe, of our work in storytelling. It's a gift that we've been given. It's a gift that communicates itself between us, through us. There are things that you hold that awaken me and others. There are some things that I hold that awaken me and you and others. And in the, in the conversation between the two, and it's not just conversation, it's not a conversation of words exclusively. It's a conversation of stories. It's a conversation of emotions. This is what it is to be alive. It's what it is to be in love. And I love Sokomar, Soka Rose West. <laughs> <laughs> former Soka Markovsky, yeah. former Soka Roost. <laughs> and and I, I will sing your song. I will sing your song until the day I die. Hmm. I'm, I'm also going to, I'm going to sing it with and to others too. Because it's important. It's not necessarily important for everybody else to hear it, but it is important for me to sing it. That, that was kind of the experience I think that we, we, we had this week. Because, of course, some of the things that I wish to share, I, what, what I remember your initial reaction was something along the level of like, oh, Joe, you, know, you, you read so much and you, and you, you love looking at this like scientific lens. This is very academic. It's very interesting, but like, go talk with your academic friends. This isn't for me. And there was even a way, because of who you are and your experience, right? It, it felt a little bit like I was overcrowding you. I think, is that a fair way to say it? Yeah. That, that it was it, it, like, somehow you felt a competitive element in it or something as if, aha, I'm delivering this masterful essay and thing that I wrote, you know, whether it's masterful or not, that's not even to the point. <laughs> but, that, but, but that you experienced it that way. And what it did is it, it, you felt me sort of encroaching on you and your understanding and it allowed us to kind of have a block. And I, and then I, and I experienced that too. And of course I grew frustrated <laughs> and we had some terse words <laughs> between us. And yet, yet we both stayed with it because, because I do think that, that, that at root, we recognize the beauty that, that each other holds. And it's actually, it's important for me in that essay because I don't even care that much about the essay or about the writing or anything. I don't, I don't even need to engage in that material. But I want you to know. I want you to know how much I love you. And when I share this with you, it's not that we need to agree, right? We don't, we don't need exactly to agree. But when I share it with you, I care not only what you think about it, I care about how you react to it. I care about how it feels because I do recognize this. Like we had this experience with this woman a little while ago 
who reflected back to me and to us that like, hey, Joe, you know, sometimes your energy is so strong, you dominate and we don't want you to do that. Quit doing that because Silka is so lovely. Or it wasn't even exactly that, right? But it was something along those lines. And it was hard for me to hear that at first, right? Mm -hmm. But I sat with it because I get it. Because my energy comes on very strong. It's a, it's a strength that I have. It is a weakness that I have. Yeah. And for me, I mean, with my background, I, you know, it, it's, sometimes it can be a trauma trigger. But I'm also, I'm working on working with my personal trauma. And I'm actually, I want to work through it from a place of love. And I actually am very strong and I can actually stand in the storm. I have not looked for a relationship that makes it so easy for me that I don't have to work on myself anymore. Mm. And so I'm going to meet that part and I'm going to stand strong in myself. And uh, if that means for me to let all these feelings come through and uh, then find my voice and rise up again to meet you, that's what I do and for me the ceremonies help me it helps me to go into this place of you know experiencing the heat in the sweat lodge in this like having to surrender having to truly surrender to like all that I have picked up in the week and let go and then like cleansing purifying because we take on so much information and I think this was also what came up for me sometimes there is so much information streaming in on human Mm -hmm. beings Mm -hmm. that I have to say I'm like I wonder who is actually still listening on the podcast right now I mean listening through the whole essay and and arrives here and if you have arrived at this point we have given you so much information. So now my question would be, how do you as a listener now create the space to digest yeah. all that you have heard? Where is your digesting space? Where is the place where you can burn off everything you heard mm-hmm. so that it can actually only that what matters will stay with you? Mm-hmm. It doesn't go into the drawer of judgment. It doesn't go into the drawer of disappointment uh, or all these different drawers that we have. But if we really truly can absorb it, then it, it will find a place. And at one point, it it would influence us, say, in our storytelling ability because there's something that we heard that maybe left something with us that is of deeper meaning. And it actually doesn't need to be recalled through the words. It's, it's, mm-hmm. It comes through in the way you tell the stories. Mm-hmm. And maybe you got overwhelmed by listening to the first part of the essay already and, and you turned off and you listened to yourself and, you know, and so whatever took place... But there's room for everything and everyone. And I think that's the message ultimately in it, that we can meet each other from our places of differences and that the intention of us and our storytelling work is really to ignite a spark for curiosity, Mm -hmm. evolution of humanity and of uh, the evolution of this beautiful Pachamama, this beautiful planet, and how we can stay stay in awe and wonder about like wow isn't this amazing yeah we've made it so far you know so there is something happening in our consciousness that this all is becoming an awareness okay can i draw in another piece and i hope i hope we can i i'm with you this is so much there's so much boy if you're listening still god bless you But it even helps, it helps me to sing it. I like saying that. It helps me to sing it. Mm. It helps me to speak it. Mm. It helps me to blow air into those coals and watch the fire ignite Mm. itself. Because we're participating. And this is sort of, this is, this is the key thing that I know that you and I are, are tied to in this, in, in, in this storytelling. We're not out here selling books to, So that people tell stories the way that we tell stories. Boy, is that not that interesting to us. 
the, 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 what, what we're trying to share and at our best, we sometimes can express this and we express it together. I cannot do this on my own. You might be able to. If anyone could, it's you. I actually think that. But, but I serve you too and I help. But this storytelling matters. We're using all these metaphors, this communication in our language, the stories that live in our minds, the stories that live in our children's hearts right now, right now. It matters, guys. It matters because what we are, that is, that is, that's what I'm trying to get at in this essay. Right, I've referred to that, that a little bit. Remember the Robin Hood part, right? That's something that, that sort of we hold on to. Isn't it interesting? That essay is like 40 minutes long. It's unreasonable, right? Who can tolerate that? Very few of us. <laughs> but Robin Hood, right? When the kids take on this story of Robin Hood, it is real. It's embodied in their flesh, right? They act a certain way. They feel a certain way. They see themselves a certain way. This is what stories do. They live in us. They live in children. They live in adults too. And it is, it is a dark and twisted forest out there, right? It is not just, storytelling is not just love and light. We know that humans can use stories to manipulate and spread hatred through the world. We know this. That's what propaganda is. I'm not steering us into the darkness of storytelling. I'm helping us remember that stories matter. That's what we are doing. That's what you are doing. That's what many of us, there's lots of people doing it. That's the root of our work here, right? The story matters. It matters what I think about you. It matters what I think about your reaction to me. It matters all of these things. They're, they're in this story realm. It doesn't matter if they're true. It doesn't matter if they're false. It's not exclusively about the content because our reactions, our feelings, the story of the moment impacts us. We have, we had to go through that experience a week ago of kind of, you know, me being like, hey, Silco, guess what? I wrote this thing and I love it. I think it's so cool. And then you being like, oh, it's too much. I can't listen to this. And, and, and then us struggling through that. So I'm going to bring in a, one more metaphor, if I may, which is trash, which is the pollution of this planet. It is the pollution of our minds. Guys, it's not pollution. It's not, this is, the, this is the work of life. It's the work of life. It's, it is what it is to be alive. We generate waste. And when we see it as waste, we orient to it as if it's wrong, <laughs> as if it's bad. And there is also waste in our minds, in this sort of invisible space. In the way that we communicate and interact with each other, this stuff exists and it impedes us. It impedes our ability to love and honor and sing to each other. It's real. It, it really it has a very real and embodied impact. And it's hard to understand that. It's, hard, it's hard, very hard for me to understand that, for us to understand it. But I think that we're getting better and better at communicating that and it does matter. And that's why when I bring this to you, Silka, and we go through this experience, if we orient to that time and say, oh man, that was, boy, we just totally missed each other there. And now we're kind of angry. And I don't know why she doesn't get, doesn't she realize how important this was? Or you're saying, you know, you know doesn't he realize that like, you got to enter through the heart. This is too much mind space. You know, quit it, Joe. We have to honor each other in that. This isn't trash. We're not generating trash. The, 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 the trash, if you will, if, as, that, as that metaphor, as that story, that pollution in our mental lives, let's, let's call it for a second, the pollution in, in the story that lives inside our children right now on this planet. There are billions of us out here. 
There are billions of children and they have things in their minds and they got there somehow. It happened. It's do, do not hate it. We can't turn towards, we can't orient to that as a problem of anyone. It's not TV executives. It's not different book writers. It's not different storytellers. It's not old weird fairy tales. It's not violence. It's humans are struggling with story. We're trying to figure this stuff out. We figure it out through telling these stories. And there's good stories and there's bad stories. It takes all of that for us to, to sort of recognize it, to orient to it and say, you know what? Yes, that's right. I've lived with these stories. I know what it's like. I've lived for 40, 50, 60, however many years. I know what the stories are like. I know what they are in me and I know what they are in my kids. I even know what they're like in my grandkids. And I can sit here and I can dislike the bad stories, but I'll tell you what, I can sing to you. I can sing to you. And when I sing to you, I mean it. I'll do it imperfectly. I will crack my voice. I will, I will, my words will come out garbled. Each of us can do this. This is what humans can do. This is the gift that we have. This is not about Joseph Saracy and Silka Rose West. This is not about a book. This is not about anything. This is what humans do. And Silka, you are beautiful. So are you, Joe. And I, I pray that we can always, you know, carry that song together. Because in the resonance of our song together, there is a beautiful opening. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and it's like throwing a stone in the water, there's ripple effects. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and just like when we feel into the stories that we tell and if they are making us feel like they, it, it's nutrients for our growth, it's good fertilizer, because good fertilizer is made out of shit. <laughs> that's right you know and then then we actually understand that we're helping each other even through these challenging experiences to grow mm-hmm. and and ultimately that's my hope that even in growing older i want to grow with you mm-hmm. um i don't i i am continuously striving to grow in in different ways that uh, it's possible for us human beings to do that until the day we die, mm-hmm. you know, and maybe never lose the sight of that. Yeah, 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 that's, that's the root of what, what we so wish to share with you, whoever's listening. This is who you are. This is the gift that you are to this planet, if we can own it. If we can, it's hard, it's hard to do that. And so we can be gentle with ourselves and we have to tolerate the trash, (laughs) let's say. We have to tolerate it to some degree. We have to not dislike it so much because it's part of what allows us to have the sweetness too. Yeah, turn it into compost, create your recycle bins. Yeah. There are so many creative ways to deal with it. It's basically a matter of continuous transformation. And that's what is needed in this time. So we don't get just stuck on saying this is bad or this is this. And it's like, think about, think creatively, transformation and storytelling can help you in doing that. Yeah. You know, even on that nitty gritty level of storytelling, because a lot of people reflect back to us. Ooh, it's intimidating. It's kind of, it's hard to tell stories. Or I feel nervous when I do it, even with my own kids, because I feel like I can't tell the stories that are as as engaging as maybe some other people tell them, or they write them, or they make movies about them, or whatever it is. Sometimes if we try, right, if we try to tell a story with our kids and then it falls flat and we feel like, oh, I didn't, I, I didn't know, I didn't tell it right, or I didn't do it right, or I didn't 
that's just, that's the compost, right? That's the experience. And so we have to sit with that. We have to own it. But we can allow that to inform us and say, why? Why am I engaged? Or, or am I not? Or do I, do I care about this? Is this right? Are, are Silka and Joe speaking truth here? Or are they just making stuff up? We have to be engaged. And actually, we, we need to all be engaged. That's, this is why, I mean, we do record some stories now, and it's nice to share stories. But I don't really want to just record stories with you, Silka, and put out our stories into the world. That's, that's so much of what our work is, is helping everybody else see that you can do this too. We can all do it at different levels imperfectly. Some of us tell kind of really technical, sort of annoying stories like me. <laughs> and some of us tell very loving and sweet stories. And some of us tell really dark stories, right? right. But how do we hold each other in that? How do we honor each other in that? It's, that, that? it's such beautiful and important work. And I'm so grateful to be sharing that with you. Silka, thank you. Thank you. May we hold it all with love. Because from that place, there's only growth that's potential. Mm -hmm. And uh, maybe let go of the fear and say yes to growing and yes to life. So thank you, Joe. I oh. love you. Love you very much. Thank you. for listening to How to Tell Stories to Children, a bi-weekly podcast from the authors of How to Tell Stories to Children, now in 19 languages. Our goal is to help parents, teachers, and grandparents connect heart-to-heart -heart with kids. You can find this podcast as well as upcoming webinars, events, our blog, stories, and more at howtotellstoriestochildren.com and on our Facebook page. You will also find the entirety of season one, which gives more background and perspective on a variety of storytelling topics. You can also submit questions and ideas. We like to hear from you. If you value this podcast, we invite you to consider making a contribution to keep it alive. The proliferation of free podcasts, articles, and resources on the web makes it easy to forget that real people are behind the work. It means a lot to us when you take the time to rate and review our book, this podcast, or share it with a friend. And if you're able, your financial gifts at patreon.com slash how to tell stories to children make it possible for us to continue calling out the storytelling voice in other parents, teachers, and grandparents. Together, we can spread the intimacy and joy of storytelling one family at a time. <laughs>